Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McCray from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we'll be discussing Indonesia's constitutional court. Formed in 2003 as part of the amendment process to Indonesia's constitution following the end of authoritarian rule. The Constitutional Court has been firmly in the headlines over the past month because of its role in adjudicating and dismissing a challenge to the outcome of the 2019 presidential elections by unsuccessful candidate Prabowo Subianto. But deciding electoral disputes is not the only way in which the Constitutional Court impacts upon the outcome of elections in Indonesia. It has also helped shape Indonesia's political system through its power to decide whether laws are constitutional. It was as a result of a decision by the court, for example, that Indonesia held its legislative and presidential elections on the same day for the first time this year. To discuss the Constitutional Court and its role in elections in Indonesia, I'm joined today by Professor Simon Butt, Director of the Centre for Asian and Pacific Law at the University of Sydney Law School and the author of The Constitutional Court and Democracy in Indonesia. Simon, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, It's a great pleasure, Dave. And a pleasure to have you on Talking Indonesia. Could I start by asking you, obviously the Constitutional Court's remit is much broader than just election cases and reviewing election laws. How big a part of its work do elections constitute? The short answer is quite a bit. When there is an election, and of course in Indonesia there are many, many different types of elections, the Constitutional Court is almost always called upon to resolve disputes arising out of those elections. But it's also important to note, I think, that the Constitutional Court has had quite a lot to say about the electoral system itself. And it has done that in cases in which it's been performing the function of constitutional review. That is, being asked to review legislation passed by the national parliament for compliance with the constitution. Now, the constitution says a few things about elections. It says that general elections are to be held to elect members of the DPR, the DPD and the DPRD, the the national parliament, the Senate, as it's sometimes called, and local parliaments, provincial and city and county parliaments, and to elect the president and vice president. The constitution also says that these elections must be direct, public, free, secret, honest, and fair. And there have been several cases where applicants have argued that some of the nation's electoral laws fall afoul of some of these constitutional provisions. So the Constitutional Court has in many cases been called upon to review these electoral laws. I think it's fair to say that about 10 years ago, the bulk of its electoral jurisprudence was was formed. And since then, the court has just been refining various aspects of, of the system. I mean, where you're saying that the Constitution actually has quite a bit to say about how elections are conducted, in the cases that people have brought against electoral laws, are there 
particular rights for citizens or particular features of the electoral system that have recurred in those cases? Yes, there have been various issues that have recurred. One in particular has been the parliamentary threshold. The percentage of seats in parliament that parties must hold in order to obtain any seats at all in parliament. So a a party which has a very small percentage of the vote, say one or two percent of the vote, can it obtain any seats at all in the national parliament after an election? So another class of cases that the court has decided have involved candidacy requirements. So what legislation says about what a person needs to have uh, in order to be elected as a representative, either in parliament or as the president or vice president, for example. One common restriction in electoral laws is a criminal conviction. So if a candidate has been in prison for corruption, for example, as many public officials have in Indonesia, can they then stand for election for parliament or as president? Many pieces of legislation seek to restrict or prohibit people from standing. And the Constitutional Court has found that there's no such limitation placed upon candidacy in the Constitution and that provided that candidates are open about their conviction, that it's not disclosed from the public, because sovereignty is in the hands of the people, those types of restrictions on candidacy are unconstitutional. Another area of significant dispute in the Constitutional Court has been whether the presidential threshold is constitutional. Now, the presidential threshold is the percentage of seats in the national parliament or the percentage of the entire vote obtained by parties or coalitions of parties in order to be able to nominate a president or vice president Now, various challenges have been mounted to electoral laws that have imposed quite high thresholds, saying that they're anti-democratic and they prevent smaller parties from putting forward their candidates for president and vice president. And the court has heard many cases about the presidential threshold as well. So as things stand, would it be fair to say, in quick terms, applicants have had quite a bit of success in changing the candidacy requirements, overall relaxing the restrictions placed on candidacy, but not much success in having thresholds to run for president or to take up seats in the parliament struck down. I think that's probably that's probably right. I'm thinking in particular of these cases where people convicted of criminal offences have challenged candidacy rules that prohibit them from standing for election. And the court has progressively weakened those prohibitions. So initially, the court decided that if it was kind of an honesty-related offence like corruption, that was probably one that should be, was a kind of candidacy um, restriction that was quite legitimate for the parliament to impose. But as time has gone on and these cases have come before it more and more often, the court has I think, watered down that initial approach and said, well, it doesn't really matter as long as the candidate has disclosed the conviction to the public. 
I mean, it's interesting to hear you focus on candidacy because I guess when I, as a layperson, think of the influence of the constitutional court on the electoral system, the first thing I think of is the open list system in legislative elections, where previously parties would put up a list of candidates for each electorate. Um, and there might be five, 10 people elected from that electorate, and the seats would go to the people who were highest on the party list. And the Constitutional Court changed that system and made it that whichever candidates got the most votes from that party list, regardless of their position on it, would be the ones who took up that party's seats in Parliament for that electorate. Now, what was the issue of constitutional law there that led the Constitutional Court to to change the electoral system? And and is this something that took multiple cases to happen, or, or has there only been one challenge in that respect? Well, again, this has been a, a culmination of a long line of, of cases, but the court has been pretty consistent across most of these cases. It has said that the Constitution requires that sovereignty be in the hands of the people. So the people, rather than the parties, should choose who gets elected. So the party choice, the party listing of its preferred candidates in order of the top, top to bottom, might be a, a starting point for the party, but the but the people decide. So if the people choose number seven on the list, if number seven gets more votes than number one, well, number seven is going to get the seat. So the, the, the parties, and this is quite interesting, the court has said this in several cases, the, the main function of the parties is over once they've put forward their candidates. Once they put forward their candidates, it is for the people to decide which of those candidates are elected and get seats in parliament. I mean, the other case that I'd think of for the Constitutional Court is certainly this one of requiring that starting in 2019 elections, the presidential and the legislative election be held on the same day. What was the point of constitutional law that led the court to make that change? Well, indeed, it was a a case heard in 2013 in which it overturned a previous decision in which it had declared that there was no need to hold the presidential and legislative elections on the same day or at the same time simultaneously. I think that the court's decision was quite unconvincing, at least in light of its previous decision. I don't think it explained in either case, very clearly why or why not simultaneous presidential legislative elections should be held. But it seems pretty clear that the court thought that the constitution did not require this three-month gap between the legislative and presidential elections that had emerged, which the court said as a matter of custom. And so the court decided that for constitutional reasons as well as for cost-saving kind of logistical reasons. It would be better to have the two elections held together. Uh, and don't forget, this was at a time when also the regional elections were were held fairly regularly as well. Uh, you know, the, the running joke was there was a, an election being held every day in Indonesia, at least somewhere in the archipelago. And so the court was concerned to, I think, reduce the number of times that people had to go to the ballot box and the expense associated with that. When we look at it in aggregate, the court has actually made you know, quite far-reaching changes to the electoral system from restrictions on candidates to which of a party's candidates enter the parliament and also even what day elections are being held on. I mean, should we be surprised that legislators are so 
often enacting legislation that is at odds with the constitution regarding elections? Or is it more that the interpretation of the court of the provisions about elections in the constitution is quite unpredictable? I wouldn't say that the court's decisions, setting aside the simultaneous election case, I wouldn't say the court's decisions in these cases are unpredictable necessarily. But I think there is not in Indonesia today a feeling amongst amongst legislators that the constitutional court's decisions necessarily need to be complied with. It's not the first thing, I suppose, in, in, the, in the minds of legislatures when they come to review electoral laws before every national election. Indeed, it's not inconceivable that legislators might see the constitutional court's decisions invalidating decisions of previous election laws to have very little to do with new statutes that are enacted. So, in other words, to fix the problem of a constitutional court decisions, legislators sometimes appear to choose to simply re-enact provisions that the constitutional court has invalidated in the new round of electoral laws that are made every time an election is, is, is looming on the horizon. That's a really interesting point because certainly some of the changes the constitutional court has made to the electoral system, um, you know, I, I think are widely perceived to have had fairly deleterious effects. I think people were overall unhappy with having the election, the presidential and legislative elections on the same day, a feeling the campaign went for far too long. It was too many choices to have to make uh, on the one day and uh, and sort of uh, too onerous a task to, to tally the votes across so many elections at once. Um, with well, the... well, that's right. And indeed, the constitutional court's decision in the simultaneous election case in particular has caused lots of, of problems because the 2017 election law that was made in response to the constitutional court's decision in that case to govern the elections in 2019 stipulates that the 2014 to 2019 parliament determines the presidential nominations for the presidential elections. So determines who is uh, open to be chosen to, to to lead Indonesia from 2019 once there, there is a new Indonesian parliament. So in other words, the presidents or the president and the, and the vice president may have some legitimacy, but it's from the previous term of of the DPR or the national parliament, not the current term. And some would argue that this might undermine the political stability of the of the Indonesian political system. Yeah, a, a range of problems thrown up by this simultaneous elections provision. And, you know, the open list system as well. You know, we've seen scholarly analysis that because you're having so many candidates compete individually for office, it simply encourages widespread vote buying as a major feature of Indonesian elections. I mean, if a future government or legislators were now to seek to do away with these two features of the electoral system, would there be any scope for them to do so? Could they enact a legislation that changed these features of elections with any hope that it wouldn't simply be repealed by the constitutional court at the first opportunity? I'm pretty sure that they would give it a try and all they would need to do would be to pass a new law and wait for someone to challenge it. If no one challenged it, then it could continue to be in operation and the previous jurisprudence of the court would, I, would I presume, have no effect on its operation. There'd be no one saying, well, hold on, that new piece of legislation 
uh, doesn't comply with the constitutional court's decision about this old piece of legislation, the new legislation would would stand and, and I would think be applied. The other couple of things, well, there are two other things to, to consider here, I think. One is that the court's nine judges are, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a turnover of them. And so it's quite possible that the, the court and its composition over, over time might lead to different decisions in very similar cases. You can't discount that, that possibility. And the other point is that the court in many, many of its constitutional review cases talks about the corridor of constitutionality. Open legal policy is another way the court describes it. And, and, and what it's referring to here is the latitude that legislators have to create rules that are in conformity with the Constitution. So there may be versions of the open list system that comply with the Constitution. The list system that the, that the court invalidated seems to be off the table in terms of constitutionality. But there are other variations of it, perhaps, that the court might not see a problem with. So there is a bit of latitude that legislators have uh, in responding to court's decisions if they decide to respond to the court's decisions at all. As I said, it's quite likely, in fact, probable that legislators will just pass whatever electoral laws they like, hope that no one challenges the law, and, you know, if, it, if, if someone does challenge, they might not be successful anyway. So, you know, there, there is uh, it's quite a lot of scope, I think, for legislators to push the, the boundaries of, of the electoral laws. Now, I mean, we've spoken a lot so far about this constitutional review function, but probably in the case of elections, the more well-known function is actually this role for the constitutional court of adjudicating electoral disputes. Is that a typical role for a constitutional court to play? And is it really appropriate given that the constitutional court only has nine justices, whereas other courts in Indonesia would have a much larger array of judges at, the, at their disposal? There's no question the job that the Indonesian constitutional court does in electoral disputes is pretty onerous. I mean, we had a really long marathon court sessions into the night just with this last presidential electoral dispute. But we've also in the past had the court kind of divide itself up into three panels and run parallel hearings to resolve electoral disputes. It really does work very hard. Other courts in Indonesia, there are about 7,000 or more judges operating in other courts in Indonesia. Generally hear cases in panels of, of three, but they certainly don't have the complexity of these electoral disputes where you're tallying results from many thousands of polling stations, hearing from literally hundreds of witnesses. It's a very complicated task performed, it must be said, under very, very tight deadlines. So the, the upshot of that is the Constitutional Court is the appropriate venue, in your view, then, for these electoral disputes? Well, that, that raises a whole lot of questions about whether there would be any other court that could do as good a job as the Constitutional Court does. Mm. I mean, most people would say that the Constitutional Court has its own problems. There have been a few corruption scandals. There's been a bit of disquiet, I think, amongst some uh, of the legal community about the quality of its decision making. 
putting aside the corruption allegations, but you know, can the court apply law consistently across cases to similar facts? Can it kind of interpret the law in line with 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 modern needs? Can it give a a real strong expression to constitutional rights? Can it really help citizens in their kind of battles with the state? But the alternative is probably the Supreme Court. And there's been quite a lot of toing and froing between the Constitutional Court and the Supreme Court about who should resolve electoral disputes in Indonesia. And the Constitutional Court has, has come out on, on top as, as holding the, the power to resolve these disputes. But the, the Supreme Court, even though it's got 50-odd judges in it, or it can have up to 50 judges in it, I don't think really has the capacity to, to resolve disputes in this way. And in fact, the court would have to drop all of its other cases to, to resolve electoral disputes on this scale. Now, I mean, the Constitutional Court, probably presidential election challenges are, are the most well-known, but it's also hearing challenges to legislative results and to the elections for mayors and governors. Are the grounds that people challenge on fairly consistent across those cases? And, and what are the typical grounds to challenge in them? There have been a, a range of grounds, typically vote buying, whether that be cash in return for votes or whether that be the announcement of new government programs in return for well, anticipated votes. Uh, one other feature has been the use of incumbency, perhaps the a local governor telling civil servants in his or her district or province to, to vote for him or her and to encourage others to do so. Those types of, of things, using state facilities for, for election campaigning, those types of arguments, those types of um, claims have been made across, as far as I can tell, all types of, of elections in Indonesia, whether they be regional or national, legislative or or presidential Money politics, you know, being one of the big catchphrases in these types of cases or big allegations. But one of the interesting aspects to all this is in from the earliest of, of days in resolving these types of cases, the court appears to have required that people challenging results prove that the irregularities are structured, massive and systematic and so this has been a quite a high bar, I think, for people to prove if they want to win their electoral disputes in the court. I mean, does that mean it's been rare for the Constitutional Court to overturn an election result? Um, it's been very rare, I think, for the court to overturn electoral disputes. That's not to say that it hasn't happened in local elections in particular. And there have been a couple of cases where the court has ordered that voting take place again in particular polling stations. But I think what's primarily the problem, I mean, it's very difficult to prove irregularities on that scale. I think the court established that test, that high bar, because it wanted to underline that in order to succeed, an applicant needs to show that the election, not only that there was fraud or some type of irregularity, but also that it would have likely changed the election result. And that's quite difficult to prove, even if you can point to a significant number of people whose votes were influenced by, by a cash payment, for example. 
it's pretty hard to show that enough of those people will receive money in order to, to change the result in a, in a particular area. And this is a stumbling block that many applicants have, have encountered in their cases, including the pro bono challenge in the Constitutional Court this year. You know, on that pro bono camp, when you're talking about this high threshold that the court has set to overturn election results, so of course they faced a, a massive challenge in that the electoral margin was 17 million votes. How did they go about trying to prove that that decision should be overturned? Well, they made lots of claims about what had gone wrong with the election. They said that uh, there'd been a lot of vote buying, that various government programs had been promised or finished just before the election, that civil servants had had their wages and benefits increased in the lead up to the election with the hope that they would then promote the government's successes and policies and get people to vote for them. They argued that there was some intimidation as well and various other irregularity in the way that the election was run. They also had a a lot to say about the electoral roll and how it was inaccurate and there were you know, various duplicate entries, etc. But all of these claims or allegations were very difficult to substantiate in terms of evidence, and that's where they really fell down in this case. So what evidence did they present to, to back up these claims? Well, they, they put forward a couple of videos taken in car parks, but mostly they pointed to various kind of compilations of, of vote tallies on websites. And perhaps most significantly, they relied a lot on media reports. So press reports of alleged irregularities. And this was very weak, and uh, the court did not take too kindly to these media reports as being used as evidence. This is because the media reports can't be taken to be evidence of what is contained in those reports. They need to be proved independently using witnesses, using documentary evidence, these types of things that are recognised in court. Uh, and so really the the Proboa camp made all of these claims, allegations, but couldn't really prove them in a way that the court found convincing. So, I mean, how did the, if you had a case based largely on media reports, uh, I mean, how did the Constitutional Court deal with this? Was it fairly summarily dismissed or, or did it engage extensively with, with the arguments that the Proboa camp was making? No, I, the court did engage with the arguments, but then dismissed them primarily because of the lack of evidence. As I said, the court's decision was about 2,000 pages, and I think its judgment made up uh, about 200 of those pages, or took up about 200 of those pages. And for those who were interested, the court spent about eight hours reading its decisions. I watched from Australia Online, on the court's, court's YouTube channel, it certainly was not or didn't intend to dismiss out of hand Proboa's arguments or the, the, the arguments put forward by Proboa's lawyers. It wanted to be seen, I think, in fact, it may well have actually considered all of the arguments on their merits in a way that, you know, might have given some satisfaction to Proboa supporters that the court had, in fact, considered all of the arguments. Uh, this is an important function of courts the world over, you know, the idea that you give 
people who feel aggrieved uh, a forum and that you tell them uh, or you make them appreciate the fact that you have actually given their grievances due consideration. I think the court certainly did that in this case. Sure, sure. Because, I mean, when the electoral result was announced, we saw these violent riots centred on the electoral supervisory body in Jakarta, Bawaslu. There were fears, perhaps, that the constitutional court decision would similarly be met with violent protests. So do you think it was the way the court handled this case itself that diffused some of the sort of aggrieved feelings that some Prabowo supporters were feeling? Uh, I don't really know what Prabowo's supporters felt in response to the decision, but it certainly appeared to be an effort by the court to make uh, make it clear that it had considered all of the arguments. It, it, it had given due consideration to everything that Prabowo's lawyers had put before the court. It didn't just say, not enough evidence, sorry, end of decision. It, it went through all of the, the key pieces of evidence the arguments that were made by Prabowo's lawyers and dismissed them one by one with due consideration. Because, I mean, before submitting the case, the Prabowo camp had pretty much indicated that they were not going to do so on, on the grounds that they were not going to get a fair hearing. When you look at the way the case itself was conducted, is there any justification in those sort of complaints they were making? I don't think so. I mean, the main fear, I suppose, is that you're having your challenge decided by by an arm of, of government that is represented by the incumbent. That said, the way that the court's judges are selected, so there's three from the, from the national parliament, three from the executive, and three from the Supreme Court. I mean, the way it's, it, these judges are selected is designed to not favour one particular arm of government over the other. So in this case, not necessarily to favour Jokowi because he may have had a say in the in the election of three of the judges, at least three of the judges. So, you know, there is this kind of inherent systemic guarantee of, of independence, at least in, in theory, that's kind of designed to prevent these types of allegations of bias from, from occurring. But Look, there are a few very well-respected judges on the constitutional court, but there have also been a few scandals of recent years. And whether or not that has just caused a decline in trust in the court as a, as a general principle or a general problem, rather than in this case in particular, I'm not sure. But there's also been research that's done to indicate that the court has, in quite significant political cases not sided necessarily with the government. So it's a bit difficult to answer that question, but I think that really on any objective view, the court's decision was correct in the sense that there was no real evidence put forward, no kind of acceptable evidence put forward um, by the Proboa camp of serious electoral irregularities. I mean, the pattern has been that you know, certainly in the last two presidential elections where Prabowo has been the challenger, you've had these constitutional court cases. You know, there has to be every chance that in the presidential election in five years' time, we'll, we'll again see another challenge from whoever the losing candidate or candidates are in that poll. 
I mean, as you've alluded to earlier in the, the podcast, Indonesia tends to engage in a reconsideration of its electoral system in every five-year cycle. Uh, are there changes that are needed to the way the Constitutional Court handles electoral disputes before Indonesia next convenes national elections in 2024? Look, electoral dispute resolution, like many of the types of matters the Constitutional Court decides, is very complicated complex. And I think to resolve these cases takes time, time for the parties to collect their evidence and present their cases effectively, time to interrogate witnesses in court, uh, and time to put together a decision that is comprehensible and kind of appeases the parties in the sense that they can feel that their, their arguments have been given due consideration. Uh, and in my view, at least, I think the court's timeframes are a bit tight. I understand that politically, these types of issues, these types of decisions shouldn't linger for too long. You don't want there to be the uncertainty of an electoral challenge hanging over a government's head for any kind of extended period. But to decide these cases does take time. And I think the court might have been a bit rushed in, in, in the way that it's handled these cases. That said, the court's decision has, I think, been you know, well received by the parties. And you know, as I said, it does take into account all of the relevant arguments made by the, by the parties in the case. But you know, it does all happen pretty quickly. You know, I, I would be inclined to increase the time that the court has to, to resolve these cases. I guess you could almost say that Indonesia's been fortunate that it's had two elections with such large margins that if there has been sort of a, a, a tight time frame for these cases to be heard, it's kind of got away with it because the election results have been so clear. But if you did have an election result where the vote tally was very close and a lesser body of evidence might be enough to draw a result into question, then I guess a, a tight time frame could, could be more of a problem in the future. Sure, it may it may be that in other cases, in other electoral disputes, the the result might not be might not be as clear cut, and that's when we'll see the court really needing to scrutinise the evidence that the parties been given more of an opportunity to to present their arguments and prepare their cases in particular. All these things are likely to to, um, to be more important. Now, Simon, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your insights with Talking Indonesia today. Thank you very much, Dave. That was Professor Simon Butt, Director of the Centre for Asian and Pacific Law at the University of Sydney Law School and author of The Constitutional Court and Democracy in Indonesia. Talking Indonesia returns on the 8th of August with my co-host, Dr. Dirk Thompson. Until then, of course, you can listen to the entire archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today, though. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.